0: Hey everybody, welcome back to another all new X's for Podcast, the premiere comic podcast where we talk modern marvels, skimming the classics, and more. I'm Nico and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. We have a jam-packed X-I-4-P premiere for you today, taking a look at three Eternals one-shots, Thanos Rises, Celestia, and the Heretic, before turning our attention to Punisher number two. So let's jump right in with those three Eternals one-shots. We have been loving this incredible run by Kieran Gillen, and these one-shots are no different. Don't forget, you can check the show out on Twitter on instagram at x is for podcast we hope you enjoy Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another eternal episode of X's for Podcast, where we are so excited to bring you the very best of comics, mutants, magic, and marvels. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Instagram and Twitter at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N.
1: Hey, everybody. It's Nathan. You can find me online at Away on Twitter and Instagram, where I'm going to be talking about, like, it's going to be the best baby. It's going to be the best baby. in it's
2: Thanos and i'm tk you can find me on twitter and instagram at x nate x gray x trying to
3: figure out how to modify dinosaurs with technology hello it's me steve and you can find me on twitter at howdy that's h-o-w-d-y-d-u-d-a
4: hey everyone it's me jake you can find me at twitter at omega sentinel oh mega sentinel
5: and that leaves me as kevo and you can find me over on the socials at kevo really k-e-v-o-r-e-a-l-l-y and that can only mean that we are here to talk
0: about the Triple Espresso, the three one shots, the hat trick of Kieran Gillen's Incredible Eternals run. We are here to discuss Thanos Rises, which was drawn by Dustin Weaver with colors by Matthew Wilson and letters by VC's Clayton Cowles, Celestia with pencils by Zama, inks by Zama and John Livesay, color art by Matthew Wilson and letters by VC's Clayton Cowles, and The Heretic, which was drawn drawn in part by the late Ryan Bodenheim, who the book is dedicated to. He passed shortly after the creation of this issue. Edgar Salazar filled out the art duties. Color art came from Chris O'Halloran with VCs Clayton Cowles on letters. And I'm so excited to be here and talk about this incredible trilogy of titles with you guys. And, you know, every time I open one of these books, it's just, there's something so powerful to me about Eternals created by Jack Kirby. And the very special specific design Clayton Cowles put into to make Eternals and Jack Kirby Boulder. It just really, it fills me with a sense of like Marvel sometimes remembers their creator pride. So I just want to start off with these three one shots were not released consecutively, in part because of the loss of Kyle Bodenheim, delaying the heretic a bit. So to talk about these three, let's start with Thanos Rises first. I don't know about you guys, but this for me is like one of those Thanos stories that's going to like stick with me forever, even though Thanos is totally not like as much the story. How did you guys feel about what is one of, for me, like the most definitive stories Kieran Gillen has put out in the last decade.
3: It's for sure the most definitive Thanos backstory. And like you, I really appreciated that. I've read a ton of Thanos and putting together who he is and what he is and where he comes from, is like patching things together that take place in part over 30, 40 years. And I'm sure that there has been like maybe a Starlin issue somewhere where this has all been laid out pretty succinctly. But the way that Gillen pulls in like everything that we've seen before and makes it like, no, this is what it is. This is his definitive history. This is the X lives of Thanos, you know. It really works here and it's 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 succinct. It's effective. It gets it across really well and it does it in like a really engaging, Way and the the art on it is just stunning, just completely astonishing. Really love Matt Wilson's colors on this issue in particular.
1: I absolutely love that we were giving a backstory to Thanos that kind of took him out of cartoonish villain for me and kind of made him a little bit more of a real sort of character, like you know. He is now this tragic villain despot who comes out of a hope for the future and hope for love. And, you know, it's just, it's really cool to see how Thanos really came about and the differences between his creation and Eros's creation. And, you know, just that there was so much hope from the parents that they were just going to love this baby and, and love it. And, you know, she did not love it at all. And that that's just such a like a formative thing to understand about thanos's backstory to be able to create this thing in this way that we can connect with him outside of him just being this you know you know mustache twirling cat petting villain that you know we usually see him presented as
0: yeah i really love that you said that he was born out of a hope and a love because it made me think of those immortal words by the great slap master will smith it didn't work out with me and your mom but yo push comes to shove you was conceived in love and that's now forever going to be what plays in my head whenever i think of Thanos, thanos is coming up <laughs> are you
3: are you really going to be like listening to just the two of us while reading these Thanos comics
0: all the time all the time bill withers gets me through
4: i really appreciate how you know given the way thanos has been shoved to the forefront of the i guess the marvel consciousness with the movies it's cool to see more attention being paid to how he fits into everything and with the way they're really elevating the Eternals, remembering that history because the, the the connection's been there since the 70s at least, which I think or the late 70s was I think when Thanos was introduced and this story or pieces of this story, like, like you said Steve have been told or interpreted in some form or another for a really long time and, and for a while I was, in my headcanon was the Earth-X origin for Thanos, which was that Suisan was secretly a Skrull and that's why he he
3: has the rich <laughs> oh. thank, thank you for bringing it up because I always love when somebody brings up Earth X a universe where everybody is who they are because of how they look yeah oh my
4: gosh it's very yeah. <laughs> it's very Colossus
3: <laughs> Sinister like you know metal arms get it and
0: I, it's like so oh, on the nose it's like <laughs> as on the nose as possible it's like you see that red wall it's a red wall he's like spider-man he looks like spider-man but
3: he's not <laughs> Spider's man right and then there's the punisher that's skull what, that's who I i think of whatever anybody says spiders man by the way i hear podcasts always talk about the spider-man who's is, who's is made of spiders and i'm just always thinking about this guy
0: <laughs> i'm always thinking about creepy spiders man
3: yeah don't get
0: me and tk started on this alternate version of mayday parker which i can't even she's so angsty all the time i love her i
4: love Ooh. her she's got the venom symbiote that costume design is amazing so good the costume yep.
0: design is perfect okay but what do you guys think about this world <laughs> <laughs>
4: I like the project that's being done here which is to say like okay let's make the Eternals make sense let's make the Eternals have a grounding in the Marvel Universe let's connect these characters who we say are related to the Eternals like secondarily and tertiarily and really root them in it like Thanos being connected to the Eternals has been an abstract idea for a while and it's nice to see the concrete telling of that connection the concrete showing of it in a way that makes sense since they really are making this push to Make the Eternals a lot bigger in the Marvel comics. So it's 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 good getting these stories, it's good getting this background, and it's yeah, it's something that you see I see in all of these one-shots is like, how is eternal history really rooted in the history of this earth? I
2: love the retrofitting and codification that they're doing for the eternals in this era overall, and just trying to sort of smooth out some lines, make things make sense, give a sense of a cohesive mythology and background and history for what they're going to be presenting that is taking what is conceptually cool about the Eternals and making it just a little more able to fit within the Marvel Universe. It's a tough project. And I think it was really smart to take some of the background and some of the bigger ideas in the mythology and put it into one shots rather than trying to either weave it into a story that's already pretty complicated and already doing a lot of that work. Being able to step outside of the 12 issues of the standard eternal story and just look at these stories and revisit them in that same way where you don't necessarily have to read a back issue or another issue in order to get the big takeaways of what happened in the past, I think is very smart. I will say the one thing that I maybe had a different read on is, yeah, you know, I buy some love between Mentor and Suisan and some love for their child and some hope for their child. I think they were both being exceedingly selfish especially mentor and while these are really lovely words in the bed together I think he was going to be making babies one way or the other and he's looking at it in a very idealized way but at the end of the day this was more about the science and the project for him and it's a lot more of a sinister thing than he's letting
3: I completely agree. I, I don't like they may have learned to lo- love each other over time, but like he showed up there planning to do this and there was one Eternal left and it happened to be like a hot female one. So, like,
2: <laughs> What a coincidence. Ain't that always the way it goes? <laughs> I, I was,
3: was hoping-, hoping there would be one last
0: hot survivor on this planet. We're just going to pivot from just the two of us to use me. No
2: problem. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Withers is in the mix no matter what. That's all that matters.
5: Yeah. <laughs> I think it was a still it was still a lovely and humanizing moment, but it's a moment in time that existed when it did. And the fact is of these characters is that they are eternal. And so, you know, it, it, it comes and goes like the tides. And, you know, they had good intent in that moment, but in the long run, it's such a longer project and concept than just that one simple moment. So it was interesting to focus in on it, and especially in using such classic art styles that was very evocative of classic comics. It was beautifully done, but in the end, for immortal characters like that, it means very little. It's like something that you decided to do five minutes ago, like for five minutes when you were 25. Like, that was a great moment when it happened too. Do you even remember it now?
0: I loved banging that time and. creating Creating a peoples that one time we did it that larger than life thing we're talking about I really agree and I need to bring up something you just said and Steve said it a bit earlier this is the most beautiful fucking issue of almost any Marvel comic I have seen in some time the art on this issue is startling it changed my opinion about the way every one of these characters should look and could look and it's exactly how they've always looked and the the passion in the face work the development Development of perspective across the layers of art, from the well-placed letters to the prestigious, like really intricate pencil work and the depth of the color volume. This is one of those books that like, I would buy an unlettered version of this, even though I just praise the letters. I would buy an unlettered version of this in an instant.
3: Hard to say. I think this is some of Matthew Wilson's best color work since like War of the Realms on Daughterman. Like it's just, it is so bright. It's bombastic. It glows. It's got fire to it.
2: I think there's a really, you know, big gamble that you take when you try to ape a classic style in modern publishing. It can often come off as like a little hacky or a little pastiche, and this book just is perfect. I mean, the pencils really give a sense of something that is so much closer to the old visual of the Eternals that we had, but the colors, and again, like lettering, the little, all of the detail work is so modern that everything is just enhanced. And it gives a sort of timeless quality. It gives you kind of the best of both worlds. And it reminds, after what we've seen from the Eternals run before this, which is really gorgeous art, it really gives a sense of where these characters came from and connects that to where they have been drawn now.
1: I love the stark difference in these the first two one shots, especially between the art in them and the series with the flashback sort of aspect to both of the stories it, and the aping of the, the classic, almost Kirby-esque type art here is a beautiful juxtaposition to the more realistic and more gritty and more ultra modern, but beautiful art on the Eternal series itself versus the one shot. So I, I love that, especially with the two that are mainly flashbacks, you know, that we get such a stylistic difference to differentiate these stories from the series itself.
0: One of the things that also made this issue so, so perfect is the master craftsman that, you know, sometimes I think Kieran Gillen is to comics what Ron Swanson is to chairs because he crafts <laughs> these impeccable structures and the. Parallel of Sprite and Icarus at the beginning of this issue startled me with the exquisite references to the re- to Eternals number one. It was like he knew he'd created a modern classic in a way that he could create referential moments. I was, because uh, I, I, I felt a sense of like rereading this. I mean, I read it when it came out and then I reread it for this project and rereading it. I was like, oh, this reminds me so much of that classic Eternals number one from last week. Um, Wow, what an incredible way to build characters with such depth that their myth is immediately potent. How did everybody feel about the parallels that this had with the proper series and what they're creating as the
3: modern events and the way they reflect them in the past. I like that it echoes backwards through time. As George Lucas might say, it rhymes. Mm-hmm. I really I really appreciate that kind of thing when it's when it's done with care. George, but the <laughs> like, I, I like the implication that the, this has already happened. This has happened many times before and it's happening again. It's something that kind of always gets me in a comic. Nothing is more appropriate for that than the Eternals to constantly show them living out the same little moments in their lives from whenever you sample in history. Obviously, Tony Stark hasn't always been around, but I bet if we took like a random cross section of things Cersei has done, she's probably done some crazy shit with some random powerful man in some long ago time
1: yeah i love that aspect of it especially when you look at characters like the more established characters yeah we we all know cersei's like that you know she's she's probably the breakthrough eternal in the marvel universe but i love that that we're getting a chance to learn more about like icarus who you know always just was a weird wardrobe to me you know as a not mainstream eternals fan but just reading their scattered appearances you know and i love that we are getting to. that their history does always repeat. And it's always going to be somewhat the same. And, you know, it's probably a function of the machine itself that they are going to have some of these same experiences life to life.
4: It reminds me of how big the world of the Marvel Universe is and how old it is. This wedding scene, I don't love Sui wedding dress because it reminds me of an Earth wedding dress and that doesn't feel very eternal. But I do like the appearance of the Quanta bands and this reminder that this is where they came from, Originally, and how right now they're on the fingers of Wiccan and Hulkling.
3: Absolutely cool to see that they are full circle back to wedding bands from mm-hmm. having been like bracelets for so From long. having
4: been, I think, yeah. I think, Quasar's quantum bands, I want to say.
3: I'm sorry, what is this
0: spellbound that everything is <laughs> changing size from like a giant toe ring to a bracelet
5: to a hula hoop? Nothing is. Hey, it's the,
4: it's the Marvel Universe. I love the idea that these artifacts have such a long history and that if you're paying attention, Engine, you'll see where they pop in and pop out it's it just to me really speaks to it's a really b- beautiful history to track and to see authors mm-hmm. lovingly add to it and layer on to it and give it more depth and make it feel more interesting to modernize it and give this event pathos and not just be a story that was recounted you know on a on a one splash page somewhere it's yeah beautiful
3: that's actually something I've always appreciated about the quantum bands and the mega bands as opposed to like the infinity gems I grew up reading captain marvel the original captain marvel and like i've always appreciated how like these are like legacy tools to be wielded whereas the infinity gems are always just some macguffin to be chased after and then once you got them you do a thing and then you got to chase after them again like the dragon balls you know the quantum bands always felt more like i don't know like a legacy sword passed through generations of hobbits or something it's it's something that's really cool whenever it shows up and anybody can use it and they're are galactic consequences for the responsibility of bearing it. And so like throwing it in in moments like this never feels like shoehorning marble cosmology in. it always feels like, oh, of course, this would be where they were at this time, you know, like this is what they were being used for. It is very exciting.
0: And one of the things that I think makes it so valuable is that Kieran Gillen has done all of his painstaking work to draw out a clear map of his understanding of the Eternals. And when we see moments like this, where he sees how the intricacies of the Eternals intersect with the bigger picture of the Marvel Universe, it lends more credence to things like what we can only imagine is the plot of Judgment Day. Definitely a valuable asset that things like the Quantum Band are so helpful to understanding how the Eternals fit the Marvel Universe. Now, we can always jump back in time and take another look at the first issue that we've taken a look at. But to make sure that we talk a little bit about all three of them, I want to jump over to Celestia, which gets my vote for everyone out of Nico's way. This is the thing I love the most. I don't care what people think. I don't care that I'm the least popular boy on Twitter. Um, I think Avengers 1 million BC is the greatest thing that's ever happened to the Marvel Universe next to Robbie Reyes. And I got both of them this issue. <laughs> I'm, I'm, such an, I'm such an Aaron fanboy, and I know. But like, I think the thing I like about The Avengers 1 million BC is in the most gnarly, generic, Harley-Davidson ad featuring superheroes way, it kind of is a parallel to what Grant Morrison did by making the JLA a pantheon. It makes this a symbolic idea that has always existed to save the world. I love big strong. Strong, meaty, naked hulks. I like driving a woolly mammoth. Hmm. I don't care. I like the phoenix. Um, <laughs> but I, I love it. I love it. I just love it. How does everybody feel about One Million BC Avengers? I love it so much.
2: I mean, my favorite thing about them is Ajax showing up in mm-hmm. this amazing helmet and
1: sunglasses mm-hmm. look and just
2: going,
0: hmm. <laughs> and serving Met Gala realness.
2: Exactly.
1: Yeah, Ajax understood the assignment. One Million BC Avengers are it's such a fun, campy idea. I do kind of love it, but I don't love that like the legacy of all these characters goes back that far. Maybe that's the only part I don't love about it. And it makes the Phoenix Force a little bit more discombobulated as a character. But it's a fun idea. I love it. It's fun as camp. You know, you do get a woolly mammoth, so fuck yeah.
3: I think it's hokey that the current Avengers are the ones that have like stuff echoing back to 1 billion BC and not like the original Avengers
1: yeah where's my BC wasp like
3: and I know that I'm being kind of stubborn and ridiculous about this because I love like the 1950s Avengers I love like the idea of there having been previous forms of the team but like somehow going this far back kind of breaks my brain to the point where it's like oh of course they weren't they weren't a bunch of like civically minded powerful people with a sense of duty and responsibility to their fellows that banded together to fight a common threat you know that no single hero could withstand they're not that their chosen one legacies that were always going to be this. And I don't know, that kind of thing kind of is not my favorite fantasy trope at all, to some extent, like I do enjoy it when it shows up in other things. So I'm, I'm keeping an open mind about the 1 billion BC Avengers. I, I, I think there's something hokey about it, but I also think that it's the kind of hokeyness that like the Marvel universe has made its bread and butter on since day one. And I think that that I think that's a thing that is like important about these kind of comics and about this kind of history. I still think it's weird that the star brand is there. They're trying to make the new universe happen.
1: It's the best kind of hokey. There's a woolly mammoth and Ghost Rider is riding up on him.
3: I, I agree. The the Mammoth Rider is easily my favorite part of it. Like, I, I think he's really cool. I think this is long before Wakanda was supposed to be like established in, yep. in even Black Panther comics. But, you know, that's fine, too. He's actually really cool. I'm confused about the star brand Hulk, but I kind of like half love this team and half roll my eyes at it. <laughs> i think he's just a star brand right he's not an actual he's not a green go through the green right but hulk, like other right? people with the star brand don't turn into hulks we've seen his history in avengers where he yeah, would no, I'm not like
0: i'm with steve it's like it's a hard thing to explain it's it's a star
3: brand hulk i'm it's just a... trying to get the. i'm just trying to get the technical read like it's technically not a hulk right but well, he's-, <laughs> he's technically not a hulk but he's a monster created by radiation that is not gamma maybe but is star brand because that, that baby that baby is so wait
2: hold on is the Star Brand radiation the thing that's hulking him out?
3: It seems like it is, or he's unconnectedly a Hulk. But like before he got <laughs> the Star Brand, he was a normal like hominid. Oh okay, he wasn't like a like a he was not or like a warrior or something. No, he no. was very much like a, an early pre-modern human ha- hominid. You know,
4: well, the Star Brand turned him into what he needed to be to uh, a like, Hulk. <laughs> um, I have thoughts and feelings about the one. one million BCE Avengers first of all I'm glad that it's BCE because that's important to me I like it when these stories are additive and are building on what's there already and my initial read was that this takes away or undermines a lot of stories that have already been told and you really have to like do some repair work to make it work you do have to like if Judgment War is all about doing that repair work then fine okay I'll get there I'll be fine there are opportunities to tighten up this story and make it make sense and make it line up and reconcile with what's happening in other corners of the Marvel Universe and I'm concerned that they just won't. Other than that sure they're fun to look at and it's a fun concept but this is a world with so much history that's already complicated enough that like we're just throwing a wrench in to some of the works cover it by saying
3: oh this takes place so much so so long ago that no one even remembers it. It's like oh okay well I know, but I know it's been said to death but that is how I feel about the Phoenix the constant Phoenix recons. Mm-hmm. They don't feel additive they're not yes ending.
1: Like I do love how this how this there's like two lines in this that I really thought sort of helped set up Judgment War, though. Like, you know, when they're talking about the dreaming celestial having been chopped up by an X Men's antagonist. And then, you know, obviously when she's like, I made a mistake, I should have killed the Avengers. Like,
3: Hell yeah, I, you should
1: have. <laughs> <laughs> I think, like, I, I do love how even though it's just looking back, this does seem to be attempting to set up something between those two groups in the future, which we're obviously going to see the fruition of. Well, and I just want to say I I
4: love what Ajax is going through here. Um, I personally connected with it as someone who, like, went through Divinity School thinking I was going to be a minister for a while, and then was like, hard turn no. The idea of someone who's devoted their whole life to their faith, to their god and then their god turning around and being like "Eh, we don't really need you and the the existential crisis that comes up from that is really compelling and really it sets up this rage that she's got going in this book and then in the main series too i'm all here for it i want to see how far ajak goes
2: i feel like that makes me the makari whose god was already dead when we started hanging out
3: um sleeping dreaming
2: got taken apart
3: yeah i I definitely like the focus on the religious aspects like the eternals in some way have like this catholic dogma about how they go about things you know like they have schisms they have heretics Mm -hmm. whenever anybody decides to reinterpret the law in a way that mainstream eternal society does not agree with then it leads to disastrous consequences constant wars and like harsh punishment it is crazy that like omni genocide gets the same punishment as like having a baby. (laughs) And I think, I think there's probably nothing more Christian historical religion than that, but.
0: (laughs) And it's the eternal of it. It's like the, I won't die. So, you know, I'm going to kill a lot of people.
3: It's just when you do it.
4: Well, and the exclusion offers like dimensions to its kind of punishment as well. Cause with, uh, he had that whole, that screen that burned out his retinas for every, every person that Thanos killed. Uranus, I don't know. He just gets to sit there.
3: He just gets to hang out (laughs) on a throne. (laughs) Yeah, it's it is interesting that disparity punishment.
5: He gets one of those Hannibal Lecter, Loki, Khan from the new Star Trek cages, Mm -hmm. where he's just behind the sheet of glass taunting people.
3: Yeah, I do feel I do feel like that they don't want to they don't want to torture him because they're afraid it might kill him, and then he'll be free. So one of
0: the things that this story also gave us is an opportunity for me to bring up Robbie Reyes. And I do it too much, but it's because it sustains me. And I think there is something to be said about why Kieran Gillen is the right man to write this book. One of the things, or the right person, you know, just anybody with this level of talent, gender non-specific. I think that Kieran Gillen delivers something by way of allowing me to accept Robbie Reyes as an Avenger at this level. I don't feel like, oh, they got the kid. I feel like he's telling a complex story that he's weaving together. I mean, historically, it would make sense that if we're going to talk about the nature of the Dead Celestial, we should have Robbie there. You know, he piloted the motherfucker. But I believe in so many ways, one of the talents of Kieran Gillen is he makes me care about everyone he writes. And I mean, I'm already the world's biggest, needless Robbie fanboy for no reason. But like, I really thought that in just a few panels. He showed how he can understand the voice of any character. And that's why he's able to do 75 Eternals, because he's able to give you unique people without stressing your mind to figure out how they're unique. It's a real understanding of what makes a character one of a kind that is what something like Eternals, such a big cast book, needs.
2: And I think it. Robbie Reyes is a great case of like, if it had been Tony Stark or like Logan for whatever reason or- Captain Marvel or, you know, any iconic character that was explaining this, we just we wouldn't have cared like it just would have been another scene of course that person is there of course they're explaining it but if it's Robbie Reyes that's a little odd like to the average reader that doesn't care about Robbie as much as maybe Nico does that that's the person that's there there's a logic to it of course because he works out of there but he's not the person that you immediately identify with like being the exposition character on the Avengers but Gillen is able to give him a voice and a relevance that makes it seem like even though the first visual of him being there might not make sense you wouldn't have anybody else in this scene and the scene plays
4: out perfectly it's got a good comedy to it too i love the idea of him just being like hey hey hang on i'll be right down I'll just, I'll I'll come see what you're yelling about, lady. That's Um, Robbie. That's a
0: thousand percent Robbie. It's so good.
4: But I'm still, I'm still really mad at him for killing the last star brand. So I don't know if I can uh, just let that go yet.
0: So I super recommend checking out Challenge of the Ghost Riders, where that gets mostly addressed in a primarily satisfactory way. I don't know how I feel about Robbie uh, becoming like the cosmic multiverse writer in order to make way for a regular ghost rider return. In this universe it sort of feels like marvel still doesn't understand how to have two people with the same name <laughs> at the same time let them all exist well
3: yeah i mean he may be the all writer, but i feel like that's additive like he's the ghost writer but he's also the all writer, which makes him better than johnny blaze at least oh, that's goodness, like going 1,000%. with it yeah he's making him the star of avengers forever so I, the one thing i can trust jason aaron with with his avengers series is that he likes robbie reyes
0: <laughs> yeah he took my sweet robbie and he just treats him like a million bucks and <laughs> i don't know. No, i i feel like i spent so many years being told i should be embarrassed to be a white looking latino and uh robbie has just really made me feel like man that's that's the that's like the superhero that if i had as a kid i would have been so much more vocally proud like and so robbie reyes is just a transformative thing for me and seeing other creators at least respond to him in some regard and then this puts him in the cultural vernacular because i have to assume that these 15 eternals comics 16 if you count the free comic book day edition i really feel like this is going To be a book Marvel wants to point to for some time. Mm -hmm. And just this minor inclusion just lends a little bit of credence to a character who could have fallen by the wayside without the right people following up.
3: Yeah, like Captain America.
4: This book does a good job. I think Nathan, maybe you said it before, introducing elements that are probably gonna be followed up on in Judgment Day. You've got the Avengers, you've got the X-Men being referenced pretty heavily in the context of the Dreaming Celestial. All of those pieces are what's gonna be on the board for this summer. So it seems very clear that these books are driving towards, you know, that event and giving us the the context and background that we need in order to really like if we wanna wrap our heads around it fully and get a, a full appreciation for how old some of these seeds are, that's the project of these one-shots.
0: And once again, not that we can't come right back to talking about this incredible issue of Eternals, but just to make sure that we talk about each one of these phenomenal one-shots. The Heretic, Thanos' grandfather written by Kieran Gillen with combined art by Ryan Bodenheim, Edgar Salazar, Chris O'Halloran, and V.C.'s Clayton Cowles. I thought that this issue was beyond just a really fascinating, sort of almost part one of seasons of missed kind of levels of character study, I thought it was really an incredible way to show what you can do with a limited color palette in a way that expresses a a lot more than just those few colors do. There's something so uniquely intimate and sort of enthralling about this issue. While perhaps my favorite was the first story that we discussed, Thanos Rising, there's something undeniably almost like you shouldn't be looking in on it about the heretic that I think makes for a really challenging study that I'm really excited to talk about. How did everybody feel about this third entry in the one-shots?
3: I gotta say, what an incredible, incalculable loss Ryan Bodenheim is truly his tragic yeah. passing i think people who are familiar with his work and people who are familiar with mainstream comics in general already knew that and like as a person i i didn't know him obviously and i'm, I'm sure his loss is greatly felt but this issue is a, a a huge argument for exactly why it's such a loss to the comics industry because it is some of the most gorgeous art i've seen in a really long time and all of bodenheim's sketches with O'Halloran, or sorry with chris halloran are just like unbelievable the, the way the color palette works with this like really clean really like solid line work it just it, everything feels real it feels like looking back into the the real past history of this comic book in such an interesting way i love the updates to uranus's armor to his design i think it's really cool the little like vent things on the shoulders that are constantly steaming he just looks so scary <laughs> but like sexy scary like scare me big man we well, can yeah like, you like, know like, like really this way but he makes Thanos look like not like Thanos is always very threatening and especially in this series but he somehow stands out as something even scarier something colder and something more hateful like I don't know the the texture on his like gr- grooved armor thing is really cool but somehow it just makes him seem like more like he's possible to kill me <laughs> the reality of it all
1: he's kind of like if the anti-monitor like was drawn <sighs> Daddy, <laughs> and I love it.
3: <laughs> <Daddy>. <laughs> well, oh it's gosh, really gosh, funny
1: that you say
2: that because my first comment to Nico was Thanos has finally found a daddy. <gasps> oh, that's it,
4: almost exactly what I thought, too. Yeah, me-
2: I mean, like, it's funny that Nico that you called it intimate because it is really intimate and there is something sexy about it, but it's really weird because it is Thanos <laughs> being like, There's someone bigger than me who likes killing more than me, and he's like a little bit in love with this dude, and he's like a little bit bit finally have the only thing that he has ever loved is death and now he's got this dude
3: that he's like that's a man notice me grand senpai he's like the worst and who else is then i was going to be so in love with than the worst like this yeah. guy is like he's tywin lannister sitting on his throne or really like any like 1950s americana dad sitting there and being like well you, you half-assed it like you couldn't even kill the entire universe you just only killed half of it because you were goofing off with your friends and you were half-assing everything and you're not paying attention like he's just like such a shithead and in every way, that is, like, the exact kind of, like, abuse Thanos loves from death and from other people.
4: Well, but also, he, you know, Thanos is someone who was rejected by every member of his family. Yeah. And here he is, like, encountering someone who he didn't really know from his family, who is like, hey, you're beautiful, kid. Like, yes, you you, you are my progeny. You are my scion. You're the one After person who
3: has got...
4: Well, you know, then he gave <laughs> him the course. keys what to else the course, what would they do? Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, he's he he sees him as an heir, which is terrifying, but also kind of beautiful and sweet.
5: And the thing about a character like this is it can so easily be bumbled when you're trying to introduce a character who one ups Thanos, who is such a legacy character in just across the board in Marvel comics. And the fact that everyone seems to be responding so well to his character right away, they clearly hit it out of the park with that. And that's very cool to see as well. And I think part of that is choosing to go in a direction that is almost daddy's boy. Like, they,
2: because if you just had them be like, we're both men that just like killing and like, I hate you, but I respect you. Like, it's all shit that we've seen before. It's fun to stay at the YMCA. Y-
3: yeah. I-, <laughs> I feel like that's what this is. <laughs> but like, just... Oh, no, uh, I mean, uh, it,
2: but, there's another element to it that really is like, that, for one thing, there's the family element to it, which is a payoff from these other two one shots. This idea that, yeah, this is a... Five- finally a family member for this messed up kid that doesn't think he's the worst but also like there is an intimacy to it and a thing where Thanos is actually admiring somebody and then that you know despite the fact that yes absolutely they do neg each other for a bit like Thanos admires him and he admires Thanos back and that is both terrifying but yeah it's beautiful and I think it is a deviation from how a lot of people might have written a relationship between two like super super villains um, that would have just been like, yeah, maybe good, maybe scary, maybe compelling, but something we've seen before a lot. I don't really think we've
0: seen anything that is depicted like this.
3: Yeah, I don't think we yes. see Thanos the bratty sub that often. <laughs> it's definitely, it's definitely compelling. I will stop short of calling it beautiful. These are just two dudes who are like, oh, your genocide was not as good as mine, but I think it's pretty cool you tried. <laughs> like. I, I get what you're saying. I absolutely do. It is compelling and it is intricate. It is very much more complicated than just some flat emotional exchange. But yeah, these guys, these two dudes can go down.
1: <laughs> when he changes it from like, Thank you, granduncle too. He's
3: like, Thank you, grandfather. I was like, No. That that was Thanos being a little flirty there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And like I you know, there's just no other way to put it. But is like
1: on his face. <laughs>
0: Marvel loves these super gay for you moments. And yeah. like they love putting them everywhere. And for so many years, they so strayed away from ever being like, pointed at the gay. But like Kieran Gillen is the gay and is gonna keep pointing at the gay and like i think we're really meant to read the sexy in this sometimes you know you're meant to be like no i don't see the sexy there i guess but like this is two dudes who kind of look like giant penises kind of slugging it out penis style (laughs) but like also confessing their undying
5: familial love to each other and death it's just a commitment (laughs) to love like the way the unimine was described as wrestling it's all there very, very gay. And I love it. I'm, I'm just really here for it. I think one of the things that makes this
0: book so interesting is, yeah, it's a, it's, a side of, it's a side of Thanos I don't know that well. The vulnerable, I need a death daddy side. It's just, I'm used to Thanos the lover, always trying to woo death with all the murder, you know, and this is just a really dynamically different side. And I think it's the strength of the art, the strength of the writing that we're able to accept these characters playing alternate roles, you know, something you said in the first episode of our coverage Steve is that you know there's so much classic operatic you know sort of staging to this and you know as an operatist like yeah I couldn't have agreed more and we're really starting to see and to bring back to the George Lucas thing that cyclical storytelling the uh, the ring cycle storytelling where we're seeing these echoes through the story and I think one of the ways that we're able to get that is sort of using the structure of the multiple generations of telling Star Wars where you can sort of recast Thanos from story to story because there's been time. Yeah, And the recasting is just one of the most meticulous things this creative team has now.
3: And to call back to us talking about the 1 million BC Avengers 2, that's clearly a part of this. And that's why it works so much better in Eternals than it does in Avengers, I think, is that we have this like cyclical cycle of ancient patriarchs. Uh, A thing that always like brings a little bit of vomit to my mouth, but it is a a, a realistic thing in this kind of storytelling and in the world. So I'm actually looking forward to eventually getting a one shot about these three patriarchs. I want to learn about these Crazy three brothers just having hijinks, ruling eternal society.
0: Floor to more from all.
3: I, I would just you say. At me. <laughs> what?
0: You, you okay? Sorry, Kevo laughed at me, and my. Because I, I gestured with big arms to the <laughs> and Kevo started trying to not chortle at me into well, the microphone. And the rhyming. <laughs>
3: Sometimes you're just Etrigan, and that's all there is to it. Uh,
0: that is literally the greatest compliment you could have ever given me. Thank you. <laughs>
1: yeah, I love how these three one-shots and what we've read so far, Terminal 1 through 6, it, when you add that with what we've seen so far from recently in uh, Immortal X-Men 1, I just cannot wait to see what Kieran Gillen is going to come up with for this Judgment Wars. Judgment. Judgment War. Judgment. Judgment. Judgment.
0: Judgment Judge Night! Judgment Day. The real question is, do we include In the, the E or not?
4: Ooh. Depends on what continent you're on.
0: Well, what continent are you guys on? How are you guys feeling about the reinterpretation of these characters as archetypes, almost as you know Greek tragic figures to place masks on right the you know the way that you could transform a character with just the barest of costuming how does this playfulness and playful structure feel for the rest of you guys do you guys see it as a strength or are you guys a little bit more like
4: no I want my characters one note I mean I like the the sweeping kind of mythological storytelling that's happening here I like the idea of Uranus being what are we calling are we calling him Uranus Uranus
2: I'm saying Uranus so I don't keep saying Uranus your, I like your anus. Your,
4: <laughs> your anus. I'll say it like that. Your anus. Um, well, and I like that. I like that. His story is very like it's mythopoeic. You know, it's told in these big beats, and and you know he his almost his the way his way of thinking is like is is symbolic. Even um, I also just I I just noticed this, but I love how when you first see him in the exclusion, he's like covered up to his elbows and. Like, his, his hands and, and forearms are entirely, like, blood-spattered. Um, like, he just got off a battlefield, but has been sitting there for 600,000 years or whatever.
0: Oh, you know what? Like, and that's one of the things about these books that I'm glad I read them, and then we're doing this project so I can get to reread them with, like, detail reading in mind. This is one of those titles that every time I go through it, I catch something new that I wouldn't have caught if I hadn't been looking for details the last time I read to look for details this time based on. Hmm.
4: Yeah. Everyone else, I, 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 I love that this is kind of like a, a twisted mirror of the Greek Uber God who was eating his babies uh, so that he could be the only one, you know, he, this, this eternal is saying like, nothing can exist outside of us because we are perfect and must protect the machine and need to pacify the gods. But don't, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's just a, it's beautifully done.
2: Yeah. The idea that the, there is an aspect of creation and protection that the Eternals serve a function for. And in creating a structure for that, they created something that got so misinterpreted and corrupted that now like members of that structure think that actually what they're supposed to do is entirely destroy everything and find some sort of homeostasis in which nothing ever changes. And you can see that the logic makes no sense, and yet the conviction is so there that he will never change his mind it's a really um it's not even tragic. It's just kind of crazy. And you can see that it's just like almost a a force of nature that you, these characters are just going to be required to deal with. They have to stop this destruction.
0: So we sit on the precipice of what is probably going to be the biggest moment in Eternals history thus far in terms of their influence over the Marvel Universe. And I feel like we've never had a better view into the many characters that make up the Eternals. But these one shots focus on a really select few characters. So few of the characters in these one-shots were depicted in great detail in the film. Eternals, so many of these were about paying off for the readership, yet I feel like they did try to strike a pretty decent balance of an understanding of the Eternals from the film with the Eternals from the Marvel cosmos, and I was wondering how everybody feels about the sort of, I want to say, attractively nebulous transformation that the Eternals Eternals have undergone. I feel as though while it has been a very focused on the story transformation, there have clearly been efforts put in to streamline the narrative for new readers to jump in thanks to the film. And I was wondering where everybody stands, especially in light of these three very different one shots on that.
4: You know, it makes sense that um, the first one shot that we covered focused or had some focus on Icarus and Sprite, because I think the movie has the most consistent characterization from comics to movies of those characters. I've been doing a bunch of like back reading on Cersei and the Avengers, and she couldn't really be more different than Gemma Chan's beautiful interpretation of the character. Cersei in the comics is, you know, kinda mean and not super I mean, she's not like traditionally likable. She's likable because she's like pushy and super powerful and is like wow, cat sound. I think the same holds true for some of the other characters and seeing Ajak and Makari, uh, looking you know presenting much closer to their movie forms now. When um, you know just a few short years ago, or maybe it wasn't a few short years ago, but in like Neil Gaiman's Eternals run, they were looking quite different. Some of these updates make sense. I don't think that they're ever going to really reconcile nice movie Cersei with like (laughs) sassy sassy comic Cersei but that's okay because you know they're they're different worlds and they're both kind of arriving at similar conclusions about the character but through different paths
2: I find myself a little more compelled by the comic interpretations of the characters and this really large drama that we're seeing play out this really complicated thing you know I know that the Marvel movies really feel that they require if not an origin story for the first movie something that is a really not complex onboarding point and I will even say to Eternal's credit it was a pretty complex onboarding point compared to other Marvel movies and it did indicate a bunch of history for the characters that it kind of went through methodically but of course we all know who are comic book fans that the history is actually much greater and what our characters that we're seeing in the MCU are going through is a tiny little fragment of a what is likely a more complex story, which is of course, spoiler alert, revealed at the end of the movie that like they are part of this bigger thing and it probably could look something like what we see in the comics. I guess the the more I read this story that does kind of throw you in the deep end, even if you know some eternal stuff, I kind of wish that the movie had taken the risk of just going big, going bold, introducing more characters, introducing the complexity of eternal society and just letting that be the... The corner of the MCU that was weird and complicated and high drama. Because no matter what, it's going to be that. It's just kind of a matter of how it gets there.
1: So for me, what I can't say, because I'm probably like the last person to see Eternals. And Steve's going to make sure I watch it (laughs) this next weekend. I can't say before the complexity in my disknowledge of Eternals lore and the way it was presented sometimes in the past made me not excited to watch the movie. Now the way Kieran Gillen has been presenting the information and kind of like reconceptualizing how I can see Eternals as something That can be deeper than the fun and campy appearances that I have seen. Like now I'm excited to actually see this movie and to get to see these characters that I've been getting to know through this series.
3: I I really like the Eternals movie, but I gotta say, like the characters are always gonna be flatter and less complicated than they are in the comics, and that's just like a thing we all have to accept at this point is that the Marvel movies are never gonna have that complication because they don't come out, you know, once a month. They they take years to come out and then they tell one story. They don't have the the numerous appearances and the numerous hands on the writing and directing chores that would necessitate the kind of complex character that is built from multiple writers and multiple artists working on a character for years and years and years every month. So yeah, I mean, I, I really like the Eternals movie. I feel like this comic got me more excited to see it because I wanted to see what might have been taken from Kieran Gillen's run to see in the movie. Some of the characters are a little flatter than I'd like comparatively, but some of them are inspired changes and choices. I like as I've talked about on our previous coverage I think the switch around with Drug and Icarus in terms of their character was extremely interesting and there's nuance there too I mean like Icarus still didn't do it because he was like a bad guy he did it because he had like you know a, a zealous belief in the celestial gods which is at the heart of this kind of mini series of one shots as well.
0: And I think that's part of why I am so glad that we're covering Eternals right now it's a really progressive time for the story of Eternals which feels like it has always been sort of thrown back and forth across I want to say like pantheonic tropes like sometimes it's kind of Greek and sometimes it gets very kind of Christian-y and then sometimes it gets very new age and that Kieran Gillen is finding a way to have room for all of it is one of the things that I am most looking forward to about covering 7 through 12 and then ultimately moving our way into Judgment Day but my last question for everyone before we start to wrap this up is with all of these characters that we're getting peeks into, and I know people have mentioned a few here and there, is there any period like, you know, when I talk about Star Wars with people who know Star Wars better than me, which is everyone, I say, you know, but this Knights of the Old Republic, when does that go? And Kevo just goes there. No, that's like a different era altogether. And that is how I'm starting to feel about Eternals. What I thought was maybe three or four solid eras is clearly 10, 12. Is there any period or specific event you would be most interested in seeing play out. I think I would maybe want the sort of genesis of our team of Eternals being like so we're like going to go hang out at the Max. Like that's what we do now. We're like the Bayside crew, right? Yeah, I know. right? I'm going to miss that show so much. I know I'm the worst. Um, But you know, I would love to see that kind of moment. Is there any moment that stands out to the rest of you as something that man, if this team could just do it, I know it would be done right.
1: You know, I would like to see some looks back because i'm stuck on cersei but i'd like to see some looks back by kieran gillen especially on cersei during the gathering saga like you know like what she thinks of what was going on in her mind then now like Uh, from what she can remember like Because I think Kieran Gillen would be able to really nail some solid characterization and maybe save some of Cersei's unhinged actions during that time.
3: I would love to see a flashback detailing her side of the Dane Whitman romance. Yes. Like, absolutely, you're so right. That would be really cool to see, especially with what we know of Cersei now as somebody who is just kind of plays ditzy uh, for the Avengers, because she thinks that's funny.
1: I'd love to see if she actually really loved... Dane too or if it was just like because that seemed real.
4: I'd be really interested in seeing a look back on how the Eternals reacted to Thanos's various I don't know, universal genocides slash like half genocides. Did they own that? Did they own him as their mistake at that point? And, you know, did that affect the shape of their society at all? Were there ramifications? Were there shifts because of it? Those are questions that I would have about, you know, what were they doing during that time? I know, I know some of them joined the fight, but not
2: all of them. I would like to see a time when Zurus and Alars were comparatively younger and that generation of Eternals was more in their prime, less concerned with the larger questions of purpose and maybe more concerned with just their duties and their charges and maybe like how that might interact with other things we know about the, the ancient Marvel universe that we're seeing come up more and more.
5: I think that for me, most specifically is something I would love to see from the overall timeline that we've been presented is a lot of places how it interacted uh, everything that we now know about eternal society how that interacted with everything else that was going on in the world was it an influence was it completely underground and there was no connection at all i think that would be really interesting to learn like the minions thing yeah kind of
0: i would love to know how often the eternals found themselves sort of like lord shaper like uh interfering with human society and being like oh hobgadling here's a boon you know what i mean I mean like i would love to see that for the eternals as well that's
3: just fun i hope there's more one shots like yes. i really love reading these i started reading more one shots during the immortal hulk run when they started pumping out really good like the one-shot yeah. stories yeah and i love these eternal one shots i think they're of the same or higher quality
0: Hey everybody, Nico here one more time. I am really surprised by the direction this Punisher title is taking, which is why TK and I can't stop talking about it. We hope you guys enjoy our coverage, and don't forget, you can tune in three times a week, Mondays, where we take a look at the MC2 universe in its totality as part of an exciting spring and summer project, before we turn our attention back to Modern Marvels every Wednesday, and then Fridays feature a mix of incredible interviews and chrono-skimming classic titles. We hope you guys enjoy. Don't forget, you can check me out at Nico Action. that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T, C-I-O-N. So keep those mutant lights lit, those Cohen gateways open. Remember, Judgment Day is a-comin', and we'll see you guys on the other side. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, marvelous, killers, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me punishing the internet over on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's
2: N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx, attempting to resurrect the children I never wanted. Well,
0: that can only mean we're here to talk about Punisher Number 2, The King of Killers, Book 1, Chapter 2, A Hand Without a Fist by Jason Aaron, Jesus says and Paul Azaceda, with colors by Dave Stewart, not the member of the Eurythmics, much to my deep surprise, as well as letters by VCs Corey Pettit, and a number of beautiful covers— this book is so visual and it's, I don't know. I've never thought of Punisher as a high art book. I grew up on Steve Dillon and thinking that Steve Dillon was like one of the greatest pencillers ever, but this book is like
2: pretty. I mean, it very much is. At the same time, I never would have thought of Punisher as an important religious allegory. And yet, this is what we're getting here. We're seeing a new view of both Frank Castle and The Hand that is unlike anything we've seen before. And it's really making me see both the character and the world of The Hand very differently.
0: And, you know, it's not just the hand that I'm seeing differently. It's sort of everything about the Punisher experience. And one of the things I think is so interesting is getting Jason Aaron to do this book. You know, when I think about Jason Aaron, I think about his now legendary Thor run. You know, every now and then Marvel is like, oh, this book is legendary and it just finished. And I'm like, you can kind of fuck yourself with that nonsense. But like, I felt like God of Thunder was legendary as it was coming out. You know, this is a man who understands men's men who know how to be vulnerable. Like his Thor was never afraid to have feels in his big old hammer.
2: And his Jane Foster is a believable god that just comes out of nowhere and can sort of juggle the humanity of being a human being who embraces enormous power and takes a step to a level sort of unpredicted for the character prior to that. You know, in that regard, it does sort of feel like Jason Aaron is one of Marvel's
0: go-to architects for rebuilding a character, you know, because he still understands what makes the character bang, you know? I can't help but notice the stylization of this cover with the Punisher logo, Punisher himself, and the suit of armor with the blood dripping, and that tiny little parental advisory. When this is one of the most parental advisory-ish Punisher issues to not have the word Max on it, I mean, the the intercourse scene alone is, is worth the price of admission, though
2: both, I think, for the artwork and for, again, the perspective that it gives us on Frank Castle, a character that, if you're not really deep into Punisher he can often feel like just this cold-hearted killer. And of course he is, but it's important, I think, early on in a series like this that is really going to be a jumping-on point for a lot of people to see a side of him that is really human and very, you know, beautiful because this is a book that is at times hard to reconcile that beauty with the violence.
0: You know, and speaking of reconciling beauty with violence, I think there's no better place to look than the dual art told in this book. One of the things about this title is that it does have extra pages every issue, and in order to accommodate that, we have brilliant art by Jesus Saiz and Paul Azaceda. and they're bound together by the incredible colors of Dave Stewart. Pour one out for Annie Lennox, and just because she's not on this title. So I think having two very stark, very different artistic approaches is fascinating. And one of the things I love is seda's. Very human-looking child punisher is in a t-shirt I've myself owned. There's something about that that makes him feel very real and very possible and like he could be you. Yet when we are looking at the gorgeous, luscious art, I mean, as a guy who trains his body as hard as he can, I would give anything for those striations and veins Like the smoothness of his immensity, he looks so good and he's got that sort of like there's too much meat on his face look where it's just like all the right amounts of trend.
2: The childhood stuff really also gives the vibe of memory. It's the almost animated cartoonish style of the art, the very line heavy art, the solid colors. It has both a memory quality and kind of like an almost noir throwback flashback quality to it it sets up really well that in some ways, in terms of Frank's own memory... This might kind of essentially be unreal, and what he's experiencing in this moment, this sort of ecstatic bliss of having his wife back in his arms, and possibly being at a place where his power to do the thing that he wants to do, which is to kill killers, is at its peak. The art is sort of hyper-real, and it, to me, speaks to sort of Frank's state of mind of this state of hyper-reality that he might be in, having everything that he wants, and sort of moving on the path to getting the last pieces in place to continue his mission. And his mission is so incredibly challenged by the very format of this
0: book. You know, when you're talking about Jason Aaron, you're talking about a man who understands how to get to the fundament of a character and rebuild it from there. So the idea of Punisher was not kill, kill, kill. It was my wife was taken from me. My children are taken from me. What would I do to get my family back? Where would I go to give myself back that peace of mind, that safety, that solitude, that emotional core? And it's he would kill anything. And that's what this book is. This book is, would you become a mindless monster? Would you truly become the beast in exchange for your wife back? You know, when we talk about Jason Aaron understanding a fundamental reality of a character, I think there's places that he hasn't gotten it before. But we're talking about the guy who succeeded Garth Ennis on Punisher Max. So Punisher isn't new to him. And I know we've talked about our varying levels of Punisher and our varying relationship with Punisher. But for me, my money, this reads like Frank Castle in a very strange role that I'm willing to follow him into.
2: When you mentioned the idea of Frank thinking, what would I do to get my wife and children back? That's not really ever been a situation that he's been in. He acts like that's what he's doing, but ultimately he has always known previously they're never coming back. So what he's doing is just revenge. He's trying to make sure that nobody else loses their wife or kids by killing everybody else who would allow violence to happen or who would perpetuate violence. He is now in a place where he can say, I'm able to get the people I love back through means which require a kind of sacrifice Sacrifice, So I have to keep killing in order to make this machine work and do the things that I want for me Also, this is kind of just now who he has been for most of his life. This is who he is He is a killer He's being asked to sort of step up and take a religious role in the act of death And that really is an important next step for a character that has been around doing the same repeated beat of I do what is necessary to stop crime, regardless of how violent it is. Taking it to a level where he is almost the murder pope really is the best possible next step as far as I'm concerned for the character.
0: I love that you brought up the murder pope kind of aspect of what he's doing as like the arbiter of death for this new age of the hand. Because one of the things that definitely does not escape my notice is the archpriestess is fucking terrifying and in all the right ways, and she really does make it clear that the Punisher, so people like, you know, the Punisher is a great master planner. He is a, a genius tactician. Not compared to this woman, he's not. And it really comes through that he's just the dumb fucking muscle here. It's weird seeing Punisher so easily manipulated. When we think of the Punisher as such a great manipulator of his villains, he knows how to get their goat. He knows how to find them where they are. And yet here he is, putty in this old woman's hands, which is something that we're seeing a lot throughout the Marvel Universe. That said, though, and I don't want to be like, I really need this to tie back into Daredevil because I find myself really missing Akka.
2: I think there's no way that repeating the phrases, the hand and the fist over and over again. And with what we saw at the end of Electra Woman Without Fear, I think it's pretty clear that we are definitely going to see Electra, Matt, the hand, the fist all come together. The story is going to need a while to build up. And I think it is those elements of Frank being both the head of this organized death cult and also being that head in some ways being very powerless and being confronted with the fact that he can't move as nimbly as he used to there are people who ostensibly beneath him should have less power and yet they're the ones pulling all the strings and he is both indebted to them for this system that they've set up that has allowed him to have what he wants and also he needs to work with them to continue this mission So there's a lot of sort of elements of that story that I think I want to see fully cemented before we go head to head with whatever is going on with Matt and Elektra, who we really only know that they intend to start the fist at this point. I want to see a bunch of issues of how that's going. Because
0: Punisher presents somebody who has been a factor in both of their successes and failures over the years. It's just so interesting that it took so long for him to cross over with this element of success or failure, because I think Punisher by nature should stay away from magic, except I find it oddly okay here. It's sort of like a darkness taking him over. It's not exactly like Punisher is running around, get to, to cover Magica Mystica, you know what I mean? He's not like doing spells on people. Instead, he has a lot of things visually and sort of story-wise in common with Arthur Harrow from the Moon Knight series from this issue. He's got some sort of penance stare, which I'm really into. And like his knuckles transformed into like bony super knuckles.
2: I think at the end of the day, His being the killer that he is is strengthening the hand and his being head of the hand is tying into the strength that he's provided by being a killer. I love the beat that they don't care if he knows how to use a sword because he sucks with a sword and it's going to take years to make him as good with the sword as the members of the hand that came before him who were slaves who learned since they were eight years old. They don't care. They just want him to kill. They've got guns set up everywhere. If he just goes and picks up a gun and kills, their structure is how happy and the magic that they know how to use because they've been trained will function on his killing with a weapon that we typically see as anti-magical so we see him both and other when it comes to existing next to magical forces and also being taken over them it's a really again you know it's not we don't associate the punisher with magic but it makes so much sense when you put it in this context and see him like this
0: And I want to comment on the visual that we're talking about here in terms of the power of the story structure. You know, we get on page nine or location nine of the digital edition, it gets so confusing to talk about pages and and numbers and whatnot. And we get what is essentially, you know— the only ad you should ever need to say that we <laughs> that the punisher is of a a specific era that is kind of problematic the lineup of automatic and semi-automatic weapons on the wall contrasted with the simplicity of the three knives in a box over and over again we see a wall of what is you know armament versus the simplicity of three weapons and there's three knives here and i'm so fucking fascinated by the fact that one of them is so much more warped and corrupt than the others one of them clearly could cause some pain but the one that frank seems drawn to is the straightforward one the one that looks the most like a tool and that's one of the things that keeps him fucking frank for me it's a tool not a weapon though all tools are weapons if you hold them right
2: and on the flip side of that the fact that he would not pick it as a child, the fact that he rejected this idea of this ceremony and this magic, the the archpriestess is trying to identify an incarnation within Frank by asking him to pick a knife. He refuses to do it, which is quintessential Frank, as we knew him prior to this book but in the context of this book we also need to see him make that choice he does and the one that he picks is the one that is most like who he is so again this is such a great example of Aaron really getting the character from the past and being able to make that synergistic with what he sees of him in a future that's different from anything that we've seen before But speaking of things that we've seen before that I can't help
0: myself but loving, look, I love Frank Castle as a big, sexy, you know, sub-fuck. But the idea of Frank Castle as a person that you can put on a Marvel Heroes banner is repugnant, and it doesn't work. And for that reason, I really want to celebrate that they're sort of making him Dark Daredevil. And one of the things that really works about that is this archpriestess represents a stick-like figure Aka represents a stick-like figure introduced for Elektra. So now we have three faces of the hand, two of them given these new sort of classical backup figures. And when we talk about who Punisher was, I don't know how familiar everybody is with Punisher's time as sort of like Captain America's most violent simp, but for a really long time, Punisher would do whatever Steve said. And it's really just that Steve was eventually like, uh, Frank, we gotta talk. You're going crazy. So seeing Frank as a child in a t-shirt that I've definitely purchased from Walmart is really kind of emotional for me. It's really humanizing and the juxtaposition of who he was and bringing him to this new place, seeing him as a child, we always see Daredevil as a child. We always see Elektra as a child. I don't know that I think of Frank as a child ever. I think Frank came out a giant roid monster ready to kill people.
2: We see him as a child and now we're seeing him as a husband and kind of a father. The more we get a side of the Punisher that is callously killing in a way that is literally divine, or maybe demonic, depending on how you want to look at it, the more we're also getting to see sides of him that are perfectly human, that are things that resonate with us, and... It is a way of seeing how anybody could fall into the position that Frank has fallen into, and yet being really horrified by the fact that it's happening, understanding more and more that this is somebody who is taking a journey through which he probably can't ever come back and be seen as any kind of hero.
0: And I wonder if that's part of why Marvel decided to change the symbol. Like, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of political things that we need to keep in mind about how the symbol has been co-opted by alt-right groups that want to use it to say that it is okay for members of law enforcement to commit acts of violent crime against the nature of what law enforcement is meant to represent. And so, you know, they were like, let's chill on this fucking symbol for a minute. But also by doing this story. In an alternate symbol, you are distancing yourself from the idea of who he is and who he was. The last time the Punisher got religious, it was with the same symbol, and they had to do some backtracking. I think having Elektra be in Daredevil's costume, having Frank have a new symbol, this really is a bold way to reinterpret the hand in a post-Marvel Netflix universe.
2: And it seems like it's really important to tying forward ideas that Marvel has about the greater relevance of their pantheon, not any one specific, you know, the Greek gods, the Asgardians, the one above all, any of it, whatever, but the greater idea of the forces that are at work that are beyond the understanding of any one particular character. Because one of the big things that this book doesn't give us is characters.
0: There is no one in this fucking book. This book is exclusively a very specific view of Frank. You know, Frank over the years has had a lot of side characters, and we keep talking about how this fits into a bigger picture of the sort of like Marvel Knights side of the de- of, of the Marvel Universe. But one of the things that this book doesn't give us is a wealth of side characters. That's something we've kind of complained about in a number of other titles where we can't keep up with the number of additionally introduced characters. So, when we got a last page reveal of Ares, I was just like, oh, right, that's what those fucking helmets are. Oh, right.
2: And again, that it's another form of divinity. Ares showing up as the god of war, that it's not the same thing as a death cult, but. There's a very real way in which these two things are now going to be in conflict both practically because the disciples of Ares have different goals than Frank does but also we're looking at a god that wants war and a demonic god that wants death and they are at opposing they're on opposing sides.
0: I love that you brought up the beast because one of the things about the beast that's so fascinating is I feel like we've never really seen the beast have his metal tested on like a mystical scale. You know, when you think about guys like Daredevil and the Punisher going up against each other, you're like, yeah, okay, that's that's pretty even. When you throw in a Ghost Rider, you're like, okay, now now we're looking at some like sort of mystical power here, and maybe that's a little uneven. And then you throw in a guy like Doctor Strange, and when Doctor Strange chooses to let the Punisher walk away from a situation, it's very kind of him. The Beast has never been on a one of those, the Beast is out here, and now he's fighting, you know, any giant creature. I've never seen the Beast versus Fen Fang Fu. So could Ares fight the actual the Beast? You know, this dark force of of death. And, you know, I also want to point out, Punisher being the Fist, by term, yes, first thing that I can think of with this exact phrasology. But this is what Daredevil was during Shadowland. So we've seen this sort of play before, but this access to the beast, this sort of celebration of death is so new for this. And it's so exciting and so engaging. If for no other reason, I want to see what
2: the beast is made of after all these years. Yeah, the beast is an exciting kind of over villain because this is not Beelzebub. It's not any sort of demon that we can think of. It is an original thing for the hand that has no context or reference by which we could be like, well, you know, we know Ares is this powerful and we know the beast comes from this pantheon where this happened, so this is what it'll be like when they fight. This is a creature that we really don't know anything about, we don't know sort of how conceptual the power is, how Frank can feed into it, if Frank can stop it, and then what happens when it goes against other divine creatures. It's a really open and rich place for storytelling, and it could be laying the groundwork for other writers to come in later and have fun with a very looming figure like the Beast.
0: And it's so fascinating that so many books in the Marvel Universe right now are so concerned with the notions of life and death and what it means to kill and or be part of something bigger like a death force. When we consider the sort of connotation of what's going on in Eternals and X-Men and what's going on with the nature of rebirth and life cycle. The idea that the Eternals understand that their resurrection comes at a cost. The X-Men have found a way to resurrect at, you know, seemingly no cost, no tap mana. And then you've got the Punisher, who is all about cost right now. And I'm just really fascinated to understand how the Punisher, a guy who was supposed to be about justice, has become about murder in such a murder-for-murder-sake kind of way, right under our noses. This was sort of like a wholesale takeover of this character's identity over the years, It's that sort of thing where, like, Lobo is meant to be a parody of hyperviolence, but so frequently he is ultimately drawn as just, like, hyperviolence. So then you've got Lobo, the parody of hyperviolence, performing as a parody of hyperviolence in a way that becomes very serious, you know, like any Rob Liefeld comic. And I'm just so excited to see the fact that Marvel is saying, we let this character go too far. He's become gross.
2: Okay, use the gross. Let the garbage have you. And not only seeing that, but seeing the way that it plays off of characters like Daredevil and Elektra, who are at this moment committing to doing better than they have in the past. Elektra especially, but even Matt is really coming off of a close brush with going too far for the wrong reasons and realizing that he absolutely can't afford to do anything but be better. So seeing those two starting an organization that is designed to do that and designed to oppose frank who has completely given into the idea that he no longer is as concerned about justice he wants to keep killing killers in service of a death cult so he can get his family back how will all these two things play out
0: and here's where i'm so ensorcelled by this book i don't know if i know that those things really happened to him in the past because they could have You know, we talk a little bit in the segment that actually ran right before this, The Eternals, about how, you know, characters, when they're predestined for something, it sort of eliminates the free will of they chose to be a good person. But I think one of the things you have to accept with the Marvel Universe is these things rewrite themselves over and over again. And in our current continuity, maybe it's Moira-based, who knows? But in our current continuity, I see it as this is that thing, you know? At this moment in the past, you know, murder mama Pope went back and was like, want some knives? And little Frank was like, no, I want testosterone filled guns. And she was like, I'll try later. And she leaves and she comes back and she's like, knives? And he's like, All Right, I, I like knives now. And she's like, thank God, because I wasn't going to do this bit again. You know what I mean? And I, I just feel like this is the first time it's exciting to like Punisher. Jury's still out on whether or not it's a problem. Like Punisher is a problem. And I'm excited to see Marvel work to fix the problem, I guess. But I I don't know. This is the most exciting the book's been in a really long time.
2: I agree. And I feel like I can trust Aaron to get through a really compelling Punisher story, this compelling Punisher story, without wrapping it up in 12 issues saying, Frank was a hero all along. I think there's going to be consequences for this no matter what. Should we ever see a character take the Punisher mantle that is not Frank Castle, I believe it will be somebody who has learned from what went on in the life of Frank, even if they are still a problematic character. I think this is the reckoning we are having with the years of Frank Castle's history that we can no longer ignore or just say aren't problematic.
0: You know, because 10 years ago, there was a terrific, exciting Daredevil, Spider Man, Punisher crossover where Punisher had his very amazing female sidekick, Rachel Cole Alves. She was a member of the U.S. military. She had lost her husband and was out for revenge. And it was a beautiful story, and it intersected with Daredevil so powerfully. We had another story after that early on in the Sewell years. But, you know, in so many ways, Daredevil and Punisher have been at odds with one another in the exact same fashion since day one. One of the things that you pointed out right away that really hit me was the religious allegory that Punisher is going through. When I think about the fact that the soldier is racking up murders in the name of a dark god and the devil is trying to save lives in the name of sort of a pseudo-Christian God, because there's no way, you know, Matt Murdoch actually believes in Christian God at this point. Like, he wants to because he's scared that if he doesn't, he would have to reassess his understanding of divinity and consequence in the real world. So he just keeps saying it's the Christian God, but he's very clearly aware that it's something a little bit more miracle man is gonna eat us you know not specifically miracle man but you know and it's the whole thing with war squirrels i can't do this every time so i love this religious parallel that you've highlighted because it really is at the core of all three of these characters and the fact that you know electra represents this sort of like tori amos we both know it was a girl back in bethlehem kind of religion mama never needed your cross you know what i mean
2: And I think the other side of it is that Jason Aaron has been playing with divinity and concepts of what God and good and evil can mean in the Marvel Universe for well over a decade now. We're seeing that pay dividends in multiple books and become increasingly foundational to how we see large swaths of the Marvel Universe going forward. And it's almost like at this point, it can't not happen for the more street-level characters. We have to have a kind of reckoning because Crime is different now. The way, even if we are saying, you know, it's all fictional, it's all allegory, it's all metaphor, It's none of it's real. Of course, it's people running around in costumes. The fact of the matter is the way we view crime is so different than it was in the 70s when a lot of the street, these street-level characters had their heyday. And it's important that we start seeing bigger themes among the work that these characters are doing. Jason Aaron really has proven himself up to the task of writing these kinds of stories. And so far, these two issues, he continues to prove himself as such. The last major thing I need to discuss is
0: that incredible cover for number three, which I don't think works if you're not reading the book. If you don't know about the murder throne, like, you know, this, like, place where Punisher gets this unbelievable first of five powers to, like, see into people and judge them, I don't even understand. So intense, so big, epic. I'm really into it. You know, it's the right thing from Aaron for this Seeing that Punisher is wearing a Captain America mask, when in the issue he's in the Captain America shirt, he's in a basically fetal position, we see him as a child. In the context of this issue, when he stands before the beast, he says that he's basically stunned into silence. What many people might not realize is the word awesome and the word awful have the same root word, awe. Like Awesome literally used to mean so big and powerful and overwhelming, only the might of God himself could do it. And when we say awesome, like people used to refer to like major bombs as awesome because of their awesome might. And that's sort of like the like reflection that we get from Frank here when he sees the beast. It's an awesome, stunned child. He thought he was like, you know, a great murderer of men. He fucking knew nothing. And this next cover, number three, him on the throne, it is a truly visceral image. Him with the lack of red, the red blood color of the throne. It's an unbelievable image if you're reading this book.
2: Also, the fact that it's kind of the red of parts of Captain America's shield, the circular pattern of the throne that he's sitting in also kind of resembles Captain America's shield. As we've said before, Cap is one of very few people that Punisher looks up to because he was a soldier, and that's something that he sees as you know, lauded above, or that's something that he used to see as lauded above all else. Now we're seeing that he's perhaps realizing that there is a lot more that he could sort of be looking up or looking down to in some ways. The other thing I think think is really important to note is that he's still trying to resurrect his own children. So I see a little bit of the children that he's hoping to get back in this child that we see in the Captain America mask on this preview cover for number three. And you know, it wasn't until you were talking about things he would look for, holy
0: shit, he's just excited to be a captain in a new army. Like, and he's responding to the general, and he really sees this as something he can trick, you know, we said that Matt tricks himself into believing the Catholic God still exists. I think Punisher tricks himself to believing he still has a soul. I think he thinks he can live with this, whatever it takes, but ultimately, I do feel like, you know, when we talk about stories with like clear reckonings and obvious conclusions that are unavoidable from a certain point. I feel the moment that we were told Frank got his wife back, there was no happy ending here. Because I, other than the fact that I really, truly, I mean, like Bellamy boy level beautiful art here with the the bodies, good fucking God. But I think those sex sequences indicate to us he can't ever be happy. This has to end horribly.
2: No, I think you're exactly right, and especially because he goes from that moment into the machine. He thinks that he is using the machine to do the job that he was always made for, and as kind of a reward for that, he's being given the things that he wants back, and he does not realize that he is being distracted from the fact that the machine corrupts absolutely, that he cannot control it, and that it will continue without him once it has used him and spit him out. He... He has been distracted by his wife such that he's not seeing the truth of the machine.
0: Now, for all that I said about Punisher having a lot of side characters that I would love to see come up or maybe not come up, I think one of the things that we're really going to need here is a strong background on hand characters. So I am maybe hoping to see characters like Stick and Stone and Akka. I'm maybe hoping for Snake Root, like a cool appearance of something like that. Maybe reinterpret the idea of Snake Root for the 30th time. Uh, You know, but what I definitely want to see more than anything is this intense character study not get rushed. You know, we were promised like it's 12 or 13 solid issues, no question, no fucking up. And I want that because the pacing here with the promise of that it's 12, 13 issues is the most elegant the Punisher could possibly hope to be dripping in blood the way he is.
2: Yeah, and like I said before, it gives us time to have Matt and Electra catch up with the fist to develop some stakes between these two organizations, and to maybe give us a really big story that won't be the definitive one between these two organizations, but will be the first really big one in hopes of a future in which these complex characters and interactions can pull in more people, give us more characters, make things more complicated, and expand the world that we're seeing. Now, all right, I have
0: loved this Punisher issue, and of course our in-depth discussion of it, what a blast, but on the complete other side of the Spectrum. The next time everybody hears our voices on this show, we're going to be discussing something a little bit different. And, you know, I know we plugged it last week and we definitely had the first episode drop on Monday, super exciting. But we're also taking a look together at the MC2 universe. And
2: man, it has been something really amazing and I've loved covering it with you. It's basically the opposite of everything we're talking about here, but in some ways it gives another sort of perspective on reflections of a different time at Marvel, how different things could have been from what we're seeing now. I really recommend that everybody read along with us and sort of give a shot to something that is not quite the new universe, not quite the ultimate universe, but really showed a lot of promise in ways that Marvel wanted you to believe that there could be more than the 616 that we know today. And I still believe that to be something that is true. I just think that certain ventures have succeeded and certain ones have failed. It's really fun analyzing the ways in which this particular universe has done both. Because I think more than anything, what
0: we do on this show is a bit of a reflective historiography. We think about where the characters are from and where they're going. And, you know, a book like this, this Punisher title, is sort of a landmark thing to get to experience at the time. So taking a look at something like MC2, where we're looking at it in a vacuum and getting to examine in a complete finished universe, is a really exciting thing that we love to do on this show. And we have also returned to Chrono Skimming Classics, so don't forget, next week on Friday, you can check out both of us, along with a ton of members of the XI4P premiere team, covering... As Guardian Wars, one of the most classic 80s non-existent crossover events that got put together in a trade ever.
2: And if you've got a little extra time, go back and take a look at our coverage of Spellbound, a truly amazing, beautiful, insane series, unlike anything Marvel has produced for or since, really will blow your mind.